and let's take out our Bibles. If you have your Bible with you, would you open up to Romans chapter 12? If you don't have your Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up one of those uh, black Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. And uh, a shortcut in case you're new to the Bible, in that black Bible you'll find Romans chapter 12 on page 1006. And while you're turning there, getting ready to take a few notes, I hope this morning, let me give a quick plug for the membership class that I have the privilege of leading each semester. Uh, if you have been hanging around here for a bit and, and you're thinking about what your next step is as a regular worshiper or even as a new worshiper at South Shore Baptist, I'd love for you to take part in the membership class with me. Uh, when you show up to that class, you're not making a commitment to join. You're not locked into anything. We have a number of people every semester that are just interested in who we are, what we believe, what we do as a church, especially if you come from a non-Protestant background or just a non-Baptist background. I uh, would love the opportunity to uh, talk with you more about the amazing things God is doing in and through this church. Uh, and so we meet in the library. That's downstairs. If you walk down the hallway past the bathrooms, turn left down the hallway, you'll find the library real easy. I hope to see you there this morning. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8 is where we're going to be today. We are restarting our study in the book of Romans. We made it through the end of chapter 11, and then we hit the pause button because all of you went on vacation for the summer, and I knew you'd be back today. And so I knew that today was a day we wanted to jump back into Romans so that we complete this journey this year together. Uh, so that's not to say we wasted time in the Psalms of Ascent. It was rich and beautiful study, but I'm excited today that we jump back into Romans together now that everyone's back from vacation and back to regular life. So what we need to do first is we need to jump in the way back machine and go back to the year 57 AD, give or take a few years. A woman named Phoebe enters the city limits of ancient Rome, and her journey began in the Greek city of Corinth. She's traveled by land and sea over 600 miles on this journey. If she averaged 20 miles per day on foot, then her trip took her at least 30 days one way. She's made this journey from Corinth to Rome in order to deliver a letter from the Apostle Paul to the Christian church in Rome. There's no mail service like you and I know of mail service in ancient Rome. So you had to secure your own delivery for these types of letters. Phoebe was a Christian woman, a leader among Christians in Corinth, and Paul's chosen person to deliver this letter to Rome. Her role was an esteemed role. In the city of Rome, there was a group of Christians, a church. And we don't know exactly how Christianity got to Rome. Our best guess, at least a little bit of evidence we have, is found in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, Jewish people from all over the empire have made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost. And we're told specifically that there are people present from Rome that day who hear the gospel and believe the gospel and are baptized, and then as good pilgrims, they're going to return home. That could be the start of the Roman church. Now, scholars believe that when Phoebe arrived in Rome, the church was not a single group. It wasn't just one group of people in one building or one room, 
but it was as many as seven distinct groups or churches in the city. In fact, at the end of this letter, Paul greets them according to the households in which they meet. Now, the people that made up these churches were just as diverse as the city itself. One scholar wrote, it's easy to imagine many of Rome's Christians as relatively poor, hardworking people with roots in the East and speaking Greek as well as or better than Latin. There was a mixture in the church of poor and wealthy, social outcasts and social elites, people from a Jewish background and people from a non-Jewish background. It was a diverse group of people, to be sure. And why did Paul write this letter? What's the whole point of all of these words and all of the effort Phoebe made to get this letter to Rome? Well, there's two significant reasons Paul wrote the letter. The first reason is intensely practical. He's planning to stop in Rome on a journey to Spain. And so he's just giving them a heads up. Hey, I'm I'm going to be heading your way uh, one day soon. When I get there, I want to stay with you for a bit. I want you to help me get on to Spain. So he sends the letter to prepare for that visit. The second reason he sends this letter is theological. He wants to address issues within the Roman church by anchoring them in the gospel message. The gospel message has radical implications for the Christian life. And so what Paul does in this letter is he lays out an in-depth explanation of the gospel. He, he lays out the explanation in chapters 1 through 11, and then in chapters 12 through 16, he instructs the readers on how we live in light of the gospel we've received. In our study of Romans, we've completed chapters 1 through 11, so we've finished the first major section of this letter, and that section contains the bulk of Paul's explanation of the gospel message. One writer described chapters 1 through 11 as the indicatives of the letter. What that means is in that section of the letter, Paul is explaining who we are, uh, what sin is who God is, how salvation works. It's a big explainer, chapters 1 to 11. And then we get to chapters 12 through 16, and there's a major shift in focus. If 1 through 11 are the imperatives, 12 through 6, or excuse me, 1 through 11 are the indicatives, 12 through 16 are the imperatives, the commands. This is how we live in light of the salvation we've received from God. Uh, So we've just received 11 chapters of unbelievable gospel goodness. Yes, we are sinners deserving of judgment, but God made a way for us to be justified freely and fully. And we're saved through faith in Jesus, and in that we're united with Him. So what's true for Jesus is true for us. He died to sin, we died to sin. He rose again, we rise again. He's loved by the Father, we're loved by the Father. He's victorious, we're victorious by our union with Christ. And so chapters 1 through 11 are this mountain of amazing news, and now we are left asking, what do we do with it? How do we live in light of the great salvation God has given us? So chapter 12 begins by telling us how to live. And I've shaped our study this morning around gift language. God has given us such an amazing salvation in Christ And so what do we give God in return? My goal today is to encourage you to be the kind of Christian 
who gives God what he wants. He's given us what we need. And so this passage shows us that in light of all God has given us, there are three gifts we should give him. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Paul writes this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity. Leading with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. God has given us so much in Christ. As saved people, how do we live in light of this gift He has given us? And this passage makes it clear that in light of what we've received from God, there are some things we should give back to God. There are three gifts that redeemed people give. The first gift is this, give your body to God in worship. Verse 1 instructs us to give our bodies to God in worship. So this passage actually begins with a look back, just like we started a moment ago. Paul looks back on all that he's written so far. Verse 1 begins this way. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God. The opening word, therefore, tells us that this is the start of a new section of the letter. But this is not some small shift, not just a change from one topic to the next. But rather, what Paul says here, starting in chapter 12, is said in light of everything that has come before in this letter. This is a big therefore. It's a huge therefore because Paul just takes everything, 1 through 11, grips it all in this big hug and says, hey, in light of the mercies of God, what I'm about to say is a reflection on all of this stuff. If we were to ask Paul, Paul, give us a title for the first 11 chapters of this letter. He would first say, what do you mean chapters? I didn't put those numbers in there. And we'd say, huh, don't worry about it, Paul. Just give us a title for the letter up to this point. And Paul might choose a phrase from verse 1. I call that the mercies of God. Though we are sinners deserving God's judgment for our sin against Him, God in His mercy has saved us from our sin by sending His Son to die in our place. Jesus died your death so that you could live His life. Those who turn to Jesus by faith are freely justified and united with Christ forever. That's the mercy of God that Paul has explained in the first major section of this letter. And so it, it forces us to ask the question of our own souls here at the very beginning of this study, am I a person who has 
received the mercy of God for my sin against him. Someone who didn't know any better might start reading at chapter 12 and think this. They might think, what Paul describes is the way I get right with God. That's a huge error. This is not an explanation of how we get right with God. This is an explanation of how we live because we are right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is not instructions for how to get saved. It's how to live saved. And that's where you might have to start this morning with understanding what we're studying. Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Are you His child? Are you His follower? Or, or do you treat Him like a, a lucky rabbit's foot type of God? You do good for Him and He'll do good for you and every now and then things will swing your way, you'll get lucky. That's not who He is. He, he's... He is the one and only perfect sacrifice for your sin. Jesus has loved you as no one else could love you. No one else can save you. He alone is the one who can die in your place for your sin and give you the holiness, the righteousness, the eternal life that is His. He gives that to you. And so you'll, you'll hear this type of language throughout this morning. It, it comes as an invitation to you to turn from your sin to turn from your religion and your irreligion and to put everything on Jesus Christ. He doesn't tell you, get right first and then come to me. He's not telling you, change your ways and then come to me. He just says, come as you are. He's going to pick you up, clean you, love you, rescue you. No matter where you've been and what you've done, the invitation is for you this morning. And I would not leave this building if I did not have my eternity in Christ set today. You can do that. When the service is over, grab me or someone you're with who you knew, know walks with Jesus and settle your soul with the Lord. Give your life to Jesus Christ today. So, although we are sinners deserving God's judgment, we've received His mercy. And in light of God's mercy to us, Paul tells believers this, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. The word to present or offer, your Bible might use that word instead. It's the same word used to describe how a high priest uh, would present a sacrifice, a sacrificial animal at the temple. He offers, he presents the sacrifice to God. In that same way, you are to offer your body to God. And what does it mean to present or to offer your body? Well, I take Paul to be describing simply our day-to-day -day lives. Whatever we do, wherever we do it, our lives are to be lived as sacrificial acts of worship to God. And what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? That might be abstract language to us, but it would have been very concrete language to Paul's audience in Rome. They were familiar with sacrificial systems where animals were slaughtered in order to pay for the sins of the one making the sacrifice. But what Paul describes here is very different from that sacrificial system. First, the motivation for being a living sacrifice is not so that we receive the mercy of God, but because we possess the mercy of God. And second, this sacrifice is not the way we become holy and pleasing to God. Instead, we can do this because we are already holy and pleasing to God through our union with Christ. 
So to be a living sacrifice means to be an all, it's an all-encompassing surrender to God. It would have been a lot easier for us if Paul would have just said, in light of the mercies of God, go to church, be a nice person, don't be so mean all the time. That would have been easy. But instead he said this, take up your cross and die to yourself every day. That requires a, a real commitment to walk with Jesus. That requires an intimate relationship with the one who has saved us from our sin. And it's the joyful opportunity for every Christian who wakes up here every morning. Now, Paul gives us three adjectives to describe the kind of sacrifices we are to be. We are living sacrifices, holy, and pleasing. To be a living sacrifice, it, it means the world is your sanctuary and every heartbeat is a chorus of praise to God. To be a holy sacrifice it means you are set apart from the rest of the world. You're not a common thing used only for an occasional spiritual purpose. You are a holy sacrifice set apart continually, different from the world in which you live, and you are there for the worship of God. You are a living, holy, and pleasing sacrifice. Because of your union with Christ, you're a sacrifice that pleases God. Have you ever thought about yourself that way? As one who is pleasing to God. There's a wrong way to do that. You look in the mirror, pound your chest, look at me. But what about when we're broken in our sin and we're just struggling You've got to get this word from verse 1 in your soul. Through your union with Christ, you are pleasing to God. When you offer your life to God in an all-encompassing surrender, as a living, holy, pleasing sacrifice, what's the result? The result is worship. That's what Paul says at the end of verse 1. He says, this is your true worship. You see, we might have gotten worship a little wrong this morning. Uh, we thought worship started at 9 a.m. today, but according to Paul, worship only continued at 9 a.m. In fact, worship has been ongoing since the last time we gathered together. Our lives, surrendered as living, holy, pleasing sacrifices, are an act of worship. It is vital that we sing in worship together. That's biblical. That's, that's, that's God's design and gift to us. So worshiping as we have this morning is essential for Christian vitality. But it's not all there is to worship. The way we live, our day in and day out, the, the mundane things of life are where we continue in the worship of God. Christian worship is not confined to one place or to one time, but it involves all places at all times. It doesn't consist solely of, of what is practiced in church buildings with instruments and songs and voices. And while those things are essential, it seems that perhaps the best worship comes from just the, the regular activities of daily life where we lay ourselves on the altar of God. In doing this, the division between things that are secular and things that are sacred becomes less and less uh, intelligible. But instead, we see all of life is sacred. Every moment is full of the possibility 
of worship. You can be just as much with God at your kitchen sink as you are in the sanctuary. That doesn't mean the kitchen sink is your church. It means we got to be here and we got to be there. But it means we worship God with all of our lives when we are living sacrifices to Him. So those who have been given salvation, we are to give our bodies to God in worship. The second gift we're to give, give your mind to God to know His will. We're giving our bodies to God in worship, and in verse 2, we're going to give our minds to God to know His will. In verse 1, focus on our bodies. Now, verse 2, Paul focuses on our minds. Look at what he says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So he begins with this command, do not be conformed to this age. What does that mean? What does it mean to be conformed to this age? In what ways are our minds conformed to this age? Well, we caught a glimpse of what this looks like way back in Romans chapter 1. And you might remember or go back later on and look at it in Romans chapter 1 verse 28. Paul described the worldly mind, the lost mind this way. He said, because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do not do what is right. They're filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness, full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence, those who practice such things deserve to die. They, they not only do them, they even applaud others who practice them. He, he gives it to us in such stark language. This is what the worldly mind and life is like. So to be conformed to this age is to think like the world and then to live like the world. That means I will live for myself, my pleasure, my honor, my name, my wants. And I'll either reject God entirely or, or I'll just attempt to use Him as a means to get what I want. As those who are saved, as living sacrifices, we're not to allow the world around us to mold us into its image. Instead, Paul tells us, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Greek word that's translated transformed is the same word from which we get the word metamorphosis. The dictionary defines metamorphosis this way. Metamorphosis is a biological process by which an animal physically develops after birth or hatching, involving a conspicuous and relatively abrupt change in the animal's body structure through cell growth and differentiation. Grasshoppers, dragonflies, frogs, toads, caterpillars, and even some species of fish undergo metamorphosis. Now, I'm not a scientist. I only took a science class in college because my college required it. But there's something wrong with this definition of metamorphosis. It leaves one animal out. Humans. It's an undeniable theological fact that it is impossible to come into contact with the God of creation and walk away unchanged. There is a deep formation that takes place when we belong to God and when we walk with Him in our lives. 
over the span of a believer's life, we are in a continual process of being changed more and more into the image of Christ and less and less into the image of the world. And did you notice that the commands in verse 2 are passive commands? What I mean by that is they are not actions you undertake. They are actions that are done to you. Do not be conformed to this age. That's the world conforming you. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's God transforming you. So in our lives, we are either being molded into the image of the world or we are being transformed into the image of Christ. There's not some gray zone in between. Either we are worldly or we are Christ-like. And we don't use the word worldly very much anymore. It, 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 I think it had a heyday back in the good old days of church, perhaps. We would talk about being worldly in our thinking. And it's a very appropriate word for making sense of Romans 12, too. You see, Paul isn't here talking about lost people, but rather his target is the church. He's, he's looking at us and saying, here's what's possible. It's possible that you can be a Christian who's received all of this goodness from God, and yet you are worldly in your thinking. And it's a problem when Christians live with worldly minds. If the Bible told you that your mind needs to be renewed, would you believe it? Would you listen to that advice? Would you hear Paul say, you, believer, you got to fix your mind. you got to change the way you think so that you reflect Christ from the inside out. Have you considered the ways in which you're allowing the world to influence your mind? How do we allow God to renew our minds? Well, to be sure, it's a process, and it's not just a one-time prayer in which the Holy Spirit rewires our brains, but rather, little by little, we are, tra- we are changed from the inside out. Paul told the church in Philippi this. He gave them these instructions. He said in chapter 4, verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, dwell on these things. So how do we renew our minds? I think first, perhaps, we start by shifting the focus of our thought lives to the things of God. Very intentionally, you and I think less and less about messaging from the world and more and more about the things of God. One of the biggest detriments to a renewed mind for the Christian, I think today, is our media consumption. All, all forms of media, not anti-media, not anti-whatever, music, TVs, movies. I'm just saying we consume massive amounts of messaging all the time. And it, it pushes out the Word of God from our mind. And so first, perhaps you start the renewal of your mind by lessening the amount of media you consume. And in its place, you put in the Word of God. Another way you might renew your mind is, is by filling it with the words of God. So again, it's not just media-less, it's media-less and the voice of God more. So uh, perhaps you are fasting some sort of media intake, and in that place you fill that time with Bible consumption. Hey, a third great way to renew your mind in Christ is memorize 
memorize scripture, really set yourself to learn the Bible. And, and you might say, I'm not good at memorizing. I know not everyone's great at that. But you can memorize some things, or you can find some way, if, if you can't recall it, to just keep it in front of you all the time. And, and don't start by trying to memorize the book of Isaiah tomorrow. Maybe you just start with one verse. Maybe Romans 12, 2 is your verse this week, and you just commit, I'm going to get this in my mind and in my heart, and I'm going to ask someone in my orbit to hold me accountable they asked me two times this week to quote my Bible verse to you, and, and the same next week. So you're committing space in your mind to the Word of God, and you're letting the voice of God renew you from the inside out. This is what mature, authentic Christians do. Now, I've separated verses 1 and 2 into two different parts, body and mind, that makes for some really tidy preaching. But you need to know that Paul doesn't separate a person into two parts. Paul isn't saying step one, body, step two, mind. Paul is talking of body and mind in a whole. He sees a person as an entire unit, not segments of a thing. And, and so what Paul's talking about here is, is not options for what you might do with your body and then options for what you might do with your mind, but this is how a total person walks with Christ in light of the mercies of God. And, and so the purpose of being a living sacrifice with a renewed mind is, is listed at the end of verse 2. He says, you're going to live this way in your body and in your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. How can you know the will of God? Is it only known by elite Christians, the most mature, the people who pray 20 hours a day, the people who walk on water, who ascend mountains and find God in the sacred places? Who can know the will of God? Every Christian with a renewed mind. Every one of us. The purpose of being a living sacrifice of renewing our mind is to know the will of God. That doesn't mean we'll know God's secret will. It's called secret for a reason. It may not mean we know God's circumstantial will. We may face situations, God's people did all the time, where they didn't know for sure what God was going to do in that moment. But God's people always know God's revealed will. And brothers and sisters, that's enough. That gets us through the day, that gets us through the crisis, that gets us to our healing, that gets us where God wants us to know. We can know God's revealed will when we live as sacrifices before Him in worship and with renewed minds being transformed from the inside out. God's people, we give our bodies to God in worship, our minds to God to know His will. And the third thing we give is we give our gifts to each other in unity. In verses 3 through 8, Paul speaks of gifts, spiritual gifts. And in verse 3 in particular, he continues with a focus on the mind. Three times in verse 3, he uses the word think. And you might remember, if you were to go back and read, you would know that he, he spoke about thinking at the end of chapter 11. Only there he's speaking of the mind of God. At the end of chapter 11, the mind of God is in view. Now here in chapter 12, it's the saved person's mind that's in view. 
And in verse 3, he says, By the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. So with renewed minds, we aren't going to puff ourselves up more than we should. We're going to take up our crosses and follow Jesus. You can't follow Jesus with your cross and still pound your chest like you're a big deal. It doesn't work. In fact, the real measure of how we view ourselves might be found in how we treat other people. Christians who are condescending or vindictive or short-tempered or mean need to pray verse 3 until it rings true in our lives, until it grips us by the jugular and the heart, and we live in this way. And aren't you glad that that's true for other people and not for you? I know a whole bunch of people that need verse 3. Oh, they got bad attitudes. And I'm going to give it to them. I'm going to pray for them. And I, I'm going to hope that they latch on so that they can, yeah, they can not think of themselves more highly than they should. Actually, don't we all need this? I don't know anyone among us who's exempt from this instruction in verse 3. Don't we all need to ask God to help us not think more highly of ourselves than we should? Paul says at the end of this verse that we should think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. What does that mean? There's different ways of understanding this phrase. We don't have time for me to dive into it. If you do any extra study on Romans 12, you'll find the different options. Here's my landing place for the meaning of that phrase, the phrase that God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Well, Paul's about to give us instructions regarding spiritual gifts being used for the sake of each other. So in that context, I understand measure of faith to mean the gifts that God has given us. We are gifted in different areas for different purposes. Another way to put it might be this. God has given you a measure of faith in an area that I lack. And God may have given me a measure of faith in an area that you lack. And because of this, I need to recognize that I am incomplete without you. You are incomplete without your brothers and sisters in the faith. Uh, last night we were with some friends and, and I was reminded of a story uh, I'd heard before from them, a story from an old preacher who once said, there are two types of people in this world. One person enters a room and says, here I am, and the other person enters the room and says, there you are. The church is the same way. Who are you in South Shore Baptist Church? Are you a here I am person? Or are you a there you are person? Paul's telling us that God has shaped us to be there you are people. And so Paul goes on to compare the church to a human body. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, Now as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. You know, the human body is not made up only of ears. We don't walk on ears or eat with ears or see with ears. Ears do what only ears do. Nor are we different 
body parts that all do the same thing. We are not legs that hear and arms that hear and noses that hear or armpits that hear. That could be kind of funny if you think about it. Someone says something to you today and you go, what? <laughs> Try it. Let me know how that goes for you. Right? The example is, is a bit absurd, and that's, kind of, that's Paul's point here. We are many different members who make up one body, and each member has a function that is both unique and vital to the overall working of the body. It is a good thing that the person sitting next to you is different from you. It is for your benefit that they are gifted in different ways by God. It is God's gift to you that He gifted them the way He did, different from you. And by the way, you are God's gift to that person because He has gifted you in a way that they need and they require. And so our unity doesn't come from our sameness. Where does our unity come from? In verse 5, Paul says, our unity comes from Christ. We who are many are one body in Christ. Our unity is Christocentric. Jesus is the center of our universe. We are stuck in His gravitational pull. We, in Him, we live and move and have our being. Now, churches can seek unity around any number of non-Jesus things. Churches can be united around politics, around social concerns, around personalities. Every one of those churches has lost their way. And South Shore Baptist Church will not be a sub-Christian church. We will be united through our union with Christ. It's the only unity that matters for eternity. So we're different. That's by God's design. We're, we're, we're unique. That's by God's gift. He has made us this way so that we can be one body in Christ doing what He has shaped us and called us to do. And then in verses 6 through 8, Paul describes the ways in which we are differently gifted by God. It's a list, list of seven spiritual gifts. It's not an exhaustive list. And, and I don't think in any of Paul's lists of spiritual gifts, I don't think any of those is meant to be exhaustive, as if this is only in all the spiritual gifts. Or if I take them from Romans and take them from 1 Corinthians, I lump them all together, then that's the definitive list. I think it's a helpful list, but not the sum total of God's giftedness. I, I believe there are gifts that God has given that may not be named in Scripture even. And so Paul's point here in giving us a list of seven, which is a highly symbolic number, is just to help us get a glimpse of how different we are from one another and yet how we are one body through faith in Christ. These seven gifts can be split up into two broad categories. There are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. The speaking gifts in this list would include prophesying, teaching, encouraging, and leadership I think if we understand church leadership as having a teaching role, a speaking role, then leadership would belong in the category of speaking gifts. Service gifts include serving, giving, showing mercy. Maybe we throw leadership in there as well. So again, not an exhaustive list. The controversial one in the list is prophecy. Just look at what he says here about 
prophecy uh, in chapter 12, verse 6. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. What does that mean that if I have more faith, I can prophesy more, bigger, bolder. I can just walk up to someone and punch them in the face with the prophecy God has given me for them. I've got significant problems with how some churches and some traditions practice this gift today. But I think that explainer, that phrase, use it in proportion to one's faith, is not just for prophecy. I think that's true for every spiritual gift. We employ our gifts in proportion to our faith. So again, if God has given me a measure of faith greater in encouragement, I'm going to encourage. And if he's given me a measure of faith that's greater in prophecy, well then I will speak the truth of God to people in light of the return of Christ and call them back into a relationship with him. Anytime you visit with a Christian friend out of concern for their spiritual well-being, and you call them to Christ, you are practicing the gift of prophecy. Biblical prophecy is not future-telling. It's not guessing lucky lotto numbers or, or assuming who the, the antichrist du jour is. It is calling God's people to God. And so here are these seven gifts from God embodied in His people for the sake of of his people. And central to this list of gifts is the reality that God has given us these gifts to be used in the local church. They're not used in isolation or outside the church. They are to be practiced in word and deed among your brothers and sisters. None of these can be used in seclusion. They're expressed in a community of faith. And, and so I, I want you to think about this. How does your absence from us affect us. If you have a gift of encouragement and you are not here, we lack encouragement. And if you have a gift of mercy and you're not with us, then we lack the gift of mercy that God has given to you for us. We are a lesser church without you. We are hobbled without your gifts employed among the church family. And so we need you here, and we need you serving. We need you using your gifts for us. And so if you're a teacher, then teach. And, and if you're calling people to walk with God in a prophetic act, then do that. And if you're merciful, be merciful. If you're, gener if you're a giver, then be generous in your giving. But we need you here to do this. There's no such thing as an ungifted Christian. There's no spiritual gift of doing nothing. God has gifted you for our benefit and for your joy. How can you know what your spiritual gifts are? Can we lay spiritual gift inventories to the side for a season? And let's explore our giftedness the way the early Christians did, through prayer and consultation with our brothers and sisters. I'm not anti-spiritual gift inventory. I have benefited greatly from these exercises. They have a role and a place. But let's start with the tools God has given us, prayer and each other. Would you pray and ask God, God, how have you gifted me? Help me see wh where am I passionate? Where am I needed? What am I built for? What am I hardwired for? And then go to your brothers and sisters and say, I want you to pray and come back to me. I, I want you to tell me what you think my spiritual gifts are.
How should I be serving in the church? How am I a blessing to other people? Let's allow the Lord in our family to speak into the ways God has gifted us. We need you to use your gifts for our good. We need you to serve us for our benefit and for your joy. Authentic, mature Christians give our gifts to the church. So God has given us an incredible gift of salvation. What do we give in return? That's what Paul has spoken to us about this morning. We give our bodies to God in worship. We give our minds to God to know His will. And we give our gifts to each other in unity. There's no other way to be a child of God. There's no other way to be a part of the church. Jesus told us the very same thing when He commanded us to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is where we find our deepest abiding joy when we live in the way God desires in light of the mercies of God that we've received. I want you to imagine with me that you have received an incredible gift. Someone has gifted you a private jet. A little pretentious, but just for the sake of argument, you have been given a jet. And not just a jet, an unlimited fuel card and a pilot and staff on call 24-7. And it even has like a sleeper cabin in it. And it has every fine amenity you can imagine. This has been given to you. And you can use it anytime you want, anytime at all. The, the pilots are on standby. They're waiting on your command to take you anywhere on this globe that you want to go. You have the possibility for incredible adventures, to go to amazing places, to bless people who would ride with you in the gift you've been given, but you never use it. It's just parked in your backyard sitting there, and everyone comes by and says, look at that, yeah, it got me a jet. Where, what have you done with it? I put some yard lights on it, it looks cool with a fire pit under it we're just you don't use it this gift has been given and, and we just leave it idle and we we lose the joy of it and so whether it's a a jet that doesn't get flown or a gifted car that's never driven or a gifted house that isn't lived in or a gifted guitar that isn't played or a gifted cup of coffee that we never drink when we fail to give God our days in the church, our gifts, we leave so much joy behind. He has given you this for your joy, for the spread of the gospel, for the happiness of the church. And we leave that behind when we don't use the gift God has given us. But when we receive the salvation gift of God, then we have to live the salvation life that God has made for us. And there we step into abundant, never-ceasing joy. Where might you start? Hey, throughout this sermon, I've given you several starting points. You might evaluate your days. Who, who am I in worship to God in my day-to-day -day routines? You might start there. You might start with your giftedness. I want to find someone who's going to who's going to help me sort through and discern my spiritual gifts. And, and I'm going to commit to use them in the church, in ways the church needs and in ways I'll create. I, but I'm going to be used in the church according to the gifts God has given me. 
But if you don't know where to start, I'm, I'm going to recommend this. I want you to start by focusing on the renewing of your mind. And I want to give you this challenge. This week, I want to challenge you to decrease your regular intake of media and replace that with time in the Bible. It might be a, a news show that you, you lay out of one night this week or a few nights this week. It might be a podcast that you sit to the side for a period of time. It could be any number of things. But you set aside a block of time that you would normally give to some other form of media and instead feast on the Word of God. Let your mind be filled with the voice of God. Our fear is that by decreasing our media intake, we'll be less informed. But Paul has just told us the opposite. By increasing our Bible intake, we will be learning the will of God. And by knowing the will of God, we will worship Him with our days and we will serve the church with our gifts as one body in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this word to us. It is full, it's a lot, but it is a, a call to joy. So we praise You for Your mercies to us experienced through our faith in Christ who died on the cross for our sin. And we praise you for so great a salvation as this and the salvation life that you have procured for us. And so, Lord, our desire is, is to walk with you out of the overflow of the joy that we've experienced in the salvation you've given us. So, Lord, help us to give our days to you, that we would live our lives day by day as an act of worship and, and that we would renew our minds by filling our thoughts and our actions with your words. And then, Lord, show us our giftedness that you have given to us for the sake of others and give us the courage to step out to employ those gifts in ways known and unknown, formal and informal. Lord, use us in the ways you have gifted us. And, Lord, I, I pray especially for anyone in here that doesn't know you as their Savior. They haven't experienced or received your mercies of salvation yet. But this day, I pray that they have been wooed by what they've heard of Christ and seen of the church, what they know of you. Lord, let this be the day that you open their hearts and they receive the gift of salvation and begin to live the salvation life you've planned for them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.